Hello, and welcome to Specimen Stories. My name is Clara Nordén. In this podcast, I explore some of the amazing and surprising signs that emerge from natural history collections. If you've visited a natural history museum, you've probably been astonished by the displays of animals and fossils in the exhibitions. But these displayed specimens form only a small fraction of the total collections contained in a natural history museum. Large museums, such as the Smithsonian, have millions of specimens in their collections that are not on display, ranging from jars with preserved fish to taxidermy birds and fossil dinosaur bones. These collections form a record of the diversity of life on Earth and are an invaluable resource for scientists. But what exactly can we learn from natural history collections? What stories do the specimens tell us? In this series, we meet the scientists working with specimens and learn about the scientific discoveries they made working in the collections. Join me in exploring the hidden world of specimens. Imagine a blackbird, such as a crow. Now imagine that it was 10 times darker. Pretty hard to do, but this is exactly how dark super black feathers are, which we'll be talking about in today's episode. Super black materials are extremely good at capturing light, so good that almost no light escapes it. A normal black object still reflects some light, which allows you to see the shape of the object. You'll be seeing the highlights on the corner and the edges of that object. But super black objects appear almost shapeless. If you haven't seen this effect, I encourage you to do an image search for Vanta Black to see for yourself. Vanta Black is a human made super black material. But how do birds produce super black colors? And why do they produce them? What can engineers learn from nature's way of making super black? I talked to Cody McCoy, who discovered super black bird plumage while being a student at Yale University. Cody is currently a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University, and she's interested in how nature have come up with clever ways to modify light, and what we can learn from nature in developing new materials. Welcome to Specimen Stories, Cody. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me to join. I am thrilled to talk about museum collections. That is great to hear. But before we dive into museum collections and your research on super black materials, materials, I'm curious to hear about your background. So how did you get interested in optical materials? This very interesting combination of physics and biology. So I could imagine that maybe this started out as an interest in nature being interested in animals and the world around you, or was it more being interested in materials and optics and light? So just tell me a little bit about how this interest started. Ooh, good question. Um, okay, where to begin? I guess I'll start by saying, yeah, growing up, I have a big family, I have four siblings, and we would spend a lot of time outside, you know, catching salamanders in the creek or watching families of hawks grow up in our backyard. Um, we lived outside Pittsburgh. So that definitely played a big role in getting me interested in nature. My parents obviously fostered that. So biology has always appealed to me, partially because you get to be outside, you get to engage with the real world. 
And I also love math. Um, my sisters and I and my brother and I were raised by my dad to love math. He would basically do math with us in the mornings through this program he developed called the Pittsburgh Plan, as if it was, you know, doing a puzzle together or playing a sport. Like for us, math was in the same category as like baseball, you know? So we all love <laughs> math and science basically. But then the really important pivotal moment in my life is when I went to college. And I went to Yale, which has a great ecology and evolutionary biology program. And a professor named Leo Buss established a course called Collections of the Peabody Museum. So this course literally changed my life. The way it worked is you got paired with two different collections managers at Yale's Peabody Museum of Natural History. And then you got to do research projects with them. They gave you a bunch of ideas. You worked with them to refine the ideas. And I, then I basically just spent the whole semester walking through the catacombs of the Peabody Museum, looking at the paleontological collections and the ornithological collections, trying to get ideas for research. Um, and one of my mentors, Chris Norris, who is British, by the way, which meant that when I would be chasing after him in the Peabody basement, you know, he would be talking to me about dinosaur skeletons and sort of giving me terminology. And I could barely hear and he was speaking with a thick British accent. I'm like, wait, I can't catch you. Slow down. <laughs> Very memorable. Um, but so Chris Norris basically just set me loose in the collections with a sketch pad and said, look around, look for interesting fossil skulls of extinct mammals and draw them and pay attention to the details. And that's when I first realized that collections are such a vital resource, you know, a snapshot of evolutionary time stretching back millennia. So that is when I realized that not only did I love research, I loved biology and I loved math, I loved museum collections. This massive wealth of data that frankly, like you could conduct, you know, infinite, well, not infinite, you could conduct millions of PhD theses in a single collections department at the Peabody. So long-winded answer, I have Leo Buss to thank, as well as my mentors, Chris Norris and Christoph Zeskowski, who is the ornithologist at, at Yale Peabody Museum, for helping me understand just how useful collections are to studying biological phenomena. That really is an amazing story, Cody. And it's great to hear that museum collections were so pivotal in, in fostering your research interests. And I really do recognize this from my own experience of working in collections for the first time. You just get overwhelmed by the number of questions you want to ask. So perhaps you open one drawer and the birds in there all have very short beaks. And then you open another drawer and the birds in there have very long beaks and yet they're closely related. And of course, you wonder, well, why are they different? Absolutely. What was your first collections experience? My first proper experience in a collection or working in a collection was at the Zoological Museum of Copenhagen. And I was working there in the bird collections, collecting iridescent feathers for a project I had as an undergraduate. And I was basically just let loose in these amazing collections to look at all these stunning birds. And for me too, I think this was really, really important experience to continue my interest in studying iridescence in birds. And moreover, it just allows you in this amazing way to see the biodiversity of Earth collected in one space that really isn't possible in any other way. That is so cool. And you're so right. They really are geography compressed into one space. You know, you can get massive variation. You can see variation over time and space in a very convenient way. Yeah, yeah exactly. So let's zoom in a little bit on museum collections. So I guess when people think of biologists, they may think that a biologist would spend time out in the field, perhaps in a savanna somewhere or in a forest, collecting data from wild animals. 
not in the dusty basement of a museum. But actually, a lot of your really interesting research or fascinating results have been found exactly in a museum collection. Why should someone that's interested in biology and optical materials spend time in a bird collection? Oh, great question. So yeah, don't get me wrong. I love field work. I love being out in nature and observing animals and doing that kind of research. But the huge value of the museum collections is that you can look at natural variation up close as long as you want. You know, if you're doing field work in the wild on something like a bird of paradise, you're just watching them from afar. But in a museum collection, you can open a drawer and see 30 specimens of the same species of super black bird of paradise, take a feather from each, and then take your time looking at it under a scanning electron microscope. And so just like we explore the world, we explore the ocean depths and the deep jungle forest, you can explore the frontier at the micro and nano scale by using museum specimens to look at the massive variation on tiny scales in nature, having to do with not just optical phenomena, you know, how creatures reflect light in different ways or absorb light, but also things like uh, fluid dynamics, um, other physical phenomena, and, and even extracting DNA from museum specimens. So I think it's a frontier just as much as the wild is. It's just uh, very conveniently placed and located so you can get large sample sizes and really sophisticated, finely tuned measurements. I really love thinking about museum collections as a new frontier. That's great. So let's imagine now that we're in the Yale Peabody Museum and we're in the bird collections. We're walking along an aisle and we have preserved bird specimens in drawers to the left and to the right. Perhaps we open a drawer and it's filled of these taxidermy bird specimens, which are all lined up with their wings folded in in the typical manner. Let's now imagine that we walk up to a drawer that says Birds of Paradise, which is this group of birds you find in Papua New Guinea. Cody, could you describe to the audience what we would see when we open that drawer? Yes, definitely. So first, normally when you open a drawer of bird specimens, you see, you know, a bunch of rows of birds, like maybe it's three by 20, a bunch of little birds lined up perfectly in a row. Birds of paradise are so ornamented, so beautiful and bizarre, that usually only a few fit per drawer, especially the males, because they have long, bizarre feathers, elaborate ornaments stretching more than a foot in length. So you'll probably only see a few individuals. But um, what you'll notice right away is that their colors often are just as bright as they were in life. That's partly because a lot of the color at Birds of Paradise is from structures rather than from pigments. Some pigments can stick around in a museum specimen for a long time, others fade over time. So you'll probably see some of the most bizarre ornamented birds uh, you've ever seen. And you'll probably notice extremely dark black colors and extremely bright and brilliant greens, yellows, blues, coppers, and golds. Yeah, it's hard for words to be enough to describe the beauty of these birds. I really encourage any listener who has not seen an image or a video of a bird of paradise to look it up. They really are um, amazing birds. Before we dive into their super black plumage, why are these birds so ornamented? What do they use their ornaments for? That's a, a complicated question. Um, Basically, they're ornamented, and it's the males that are the really ornamented sex in Birds of Paradise. They are highly ornamented because females uh, are selecting beautiful males. So for one reason or another, females prefer to choose a mate 
that looks extremely beautiful and that has tons of elaborate ornaments and that can perform elaborate mating rituals, these dances that the birds of paradise do. And scientists fall into several different camps as to why is it exactly that females develop this preference for beautiful males? One theory is that it's just arbitrary aesthetic preferences in females. This is kind of Rick Crumb's theory about the evolution of beauty. They just prefer certain aesthetic appearances, the same way humans prefer certain works of art to others. Um, a much more like widely discussed theory, which I personally think Rick is right, that's the correct null model, that females just have arbitrary preferences. A commonly proposed model is called honest signaling theory, that males usually are the beautiful sex and birds. Males develop beautiful ornaments to honestly signal just how healthy they are, whether because it's a handicap so that makes them more likely to get predated upon or makes it harder to fly, or because it's tied to their metabolism. A suite of reasons all fall under the honest signaling theory category. And I would say the third main category is um, called sensory bias, which is the idea that females evolve a preference in some other domain. Maybe they like to eat orange fruits, and then the males evolve a bright orange circular ornament. And so that's just sort of hijacking this innate preference for round orange things. So that's, it's much more complicated than the overview I just gave, but that's the general theory, yeah. That's a really good summary of what is a pretty complex debate on why these birds evolved such uh, elaborate ornaments. But you weren't so much interested in the brilliant iridescent green and blue feathers, some of these species, but the black feathers. So what's so striking about the black feathers of a bird of paradise? Well, the amazing thing is when you pull open that museum drawer and you see the birds sitting there, the black parts of the birds of paradise are so dark that your eyes basically can't even focus on the specimen. You feel like there's a puddle or a shadow or a fuzzy black hole that's basically dimensionless. And if you've seen the videos of these birds of paradise displaying, you know what I'm talking about. It looks almost flat. So that's a very unusual color appearance. You know, imagine a typical blackbird that you might see in your backyard, something like a crow. They're kind of shiny, they're kind of glossy, the same way my hair is dark and has a shine to it. It's not super matte. The birds of paradise have unbelievably matte, dark black. So that instantly caught Rick Prom's attention and caught my attention, so we decided we had to study it. How did you go about studying them? So could you see with your bare eyes how they were producing super black colors? Or what kind of means did you use to study these super black feathers? So the first step was to verify what our eyes were seeing, because as you know, humans have color vision, but our eyes are, are only so good at measuring light from the environment around us. So the first step was to use a method called spectrophotometry to actually measure in a rigorous way just how dark and what color the black patches were. One possibility, for example, is that they were colored ultraviolet. You know, um, birds can see ultraviolet. Humans usually cannot see ultraviolet. So when you see a black bird, it's possible that it's got ultraviolet patterning on it that you just can't see. So we first collected the reflectance data and found that these birds were indeed just as dark as our eyes made them appear. In fact, so dark, some of them reflected less than 0.05% of light incident from dead ahead onto the bird. So that was kind of step one. Um, so just for reference, how does that compare to the reflection of a normal black feather? 
a normal blackbird would reflect between about five and 10% of light. So 0.05% versus five to 10%, huge difference you know, in just how dark something is. That really is quite astonishing. So after you've determined now that these feathers really do reflect very little light, what was the next step in your investigation? Yeah, so the next step was to try to look at them under a microscope. And the reason is we know that melanin pigment is what usually makes black color in nature. So again, my skin, my hair, human skin and human hair is colored from light to dark based on how much melanin you have. And the same is true for birds. Typically, blackbirds are black because they have melanin. So we thought to ourselves, this is much darker than what melanin pigment alone can usually produce. Is there instead some sort of interesting structure underpinning this color? Yeah, so ex before we explore this question of whether super black is really produced by a structural component instead of a pigmentary one, I think we should just clarify a bit to the listeners what the difference between those two types of colors are. So pigmentary colors, such as melanin pigmented colors, which produce black and brown, are very much like dyes or paints that you may be familiar with. So they produce colors through absorbing part of the spectrum using a particular molecule or chemical. But structural colors produce colors from a particular microscopic structure. So this could be a nanoscale or microscale structure that when it interacts with light produces a particular color. So in other words, what you're saying here is that the pigment melanin in these feathers is not enough to explain how black these feathers really are, and you're suspecting that there might be a structural component as well. Nice, yeah, well said. So yeah, so that was the question. What component of this color is from pigments and what component is from some sort of structure? And so the next step was to pluck feathers from the birds. And we took feathers both from super black birds of paradise and also from close relatives that were just normal black birds. And we did this in a big study of birds of paradise and then did a second study on birds more broadly, including other sexually selected birds like hummingbirds and tanagers. Um, so we took the feathers, we plucked them, and then to look at them under a very high powered microscope called a scanning electron microscope, you first have to coat the feathers in gold. That's just a standard step in the preparation that helps you get a clearer image because the electrons don't collect, the charge doesn't collect on the feather if you coat it in gold. Here is the really surprising thing. I put all these feathers into the sputter coater machine, the machine that coats them in gold. You know, four minutes went by and then I opened the lid and looked in and a bunch of the feathers were gold. All the feathers from the normal black birds looked gold as expected. But some of the feathers still looked incredibly dark black. So at first I thought, did the machine break? Did it not spin the sample correctly? And then I realized this is strong direct evidence that there's something structural going on here, right? Like the light is somehow getting trapped in these feathers, even though I just coated them in reflective gold particles. So that was very exciting. And then the next step is to look at them under the scanning electron microscope. And um, I think it's true that both Rick Prum, my collaborator and I, basically fell out of our chair when we saw the images from the microscope. Normally, feathers are like fractals. So as you zoom in on little tips of the feather, it still looks like a feather at the micro and nano scale, or at the micro scale, it still looks like a feather. These had elaborate, chaotic, three-dimensional branching structures. They kind of looked like coral reefs or bottle brushes. 
which again is completely different than what you normally see in a feather. So they had deep channels created by upward curving branches of the feather called barbules. And the barbules themselves even had little hooklets and projections on their edges. So we were seeing a lot of variation in morphology at the micro scale. Mm, I think this is such a beautiful example of structural color because it's completely counterintuitive to us that if you coat something in gold, it will the result will be a black object. But in this case, because the, the structure of the feather has that bronzed coral-like shape, then the light is kind of trapped within the structure and it's absorbed multiple times every time it hits part of the feather. So even if they contain black pigments, so melanin in this case, that's not necessarily the most important part, but rather how this branching structure forces the light to be scattered multiple times and absorbed each time, producing that really matte black appearance. But I'm curious now, how does this bird of paradise design of super black compare to the darkest material that humans have made, the Vanta black? Great question. This is a great case of nature happening upon a very similar technology as to what human engineers designed. So the major differences between Vanta black and super black in nature are first the efficiency, just how dark they are. So the birds are incredibly dark but they're most dark when they're viewed from dead ahead. So these male birds need to look really, really good from the viewing perspective of a female. And if you watch the videos, the males are constantly reorienting themselves so that the female's directly in front of them. And our measurements and our simulations that my colleagues, Teresa Feo and Todd Harvey did, confirm that these birds are darkest from the direction of a female's perspective. So evolution is stingy, right? So these birds are really, really dark from one perspective, Vantablack is that dark pretty much from all angles. So that's one major difference. Vantablack also uses similar vertically arrayed structures, just like the feathers, but at a much smaller size scale. They're typically using nanoscale carbon nanotubes is what it's called that makes Vantablack. That's why they're darker across a broader uh, range of angles. But the birds have an advantage in that their feathers are extremely durable, very tough and robust. Vantablack is somewhat brittle. If you sort of brush alongside it, you can break off the carbon nanotubes. They can fly into the air and cause a lot of problems. And it's pretty expensive and hard to make Vantablack. You have to often make it at really, really high temperatures. Um, the birds obviously just develop the feathers naturally through biological means. And I know that these feathers are really robust because I have occasionally dropped a feather, accidentally squashed a feather, and I can confirm they still look super black. And these birds are out in the rain, they're out in the sun. So these feathers have to be robust across environmental conditions. So that's a long-winded answer in terms of how biology differs from engineering. Yeah, I think you bring up a really important theme here with the multifunctionality of biological materials. So well engineered materials are often good for just one single purpose that we engineered it for, but biological materials are part of this bigger, more complex organism that they have to function within as well. So for example, in the Birds of Paradise, you write in your paper that these super black feathers likely serve a visual signaling function. So together with these brighter patches with strong colors, that super black makes these, these colorful patches appear so much brighter and more colorful in comparison. But at the same time, these feathers are also part of a bird. 
And the feathers on the bird serve many important functions that are not only for, for display and to look pretty. So those functions may include keeping dry if it rains and also staying warm. So my question for you is, how, does these, how do these unique branching structures in the super black feathers affect their ability to function on the bird to keep it warm or dry? These other functions that are so important for the bird. Oh, great question. Yeah, feathers are such an evolutionary marvel. They've been used for all sorts of purposes. There are feathers that are waterproof, feathers that purposely absorb water, feathers that make no sound, feathers that purposely make sound. So this base form of a feather made out of keratin, the same kind of material that makes our hair and fingernails, has been diversified and adapted to meet a million different needs, as you say. So in terms of super black feathers, oh, yeah, I can say a few things. So first, Flight feathers are very specialized. Wing and tail feathers are very uh, rigid because that helps birds fly better. And I've never seen a bird that has super black flight feathers. That's probably because the structures that trap light in a super black feather are otherwise occupied in a flight feather. They're basically Velcro. They hook the feather together to make it rigid. So there's an example of it, it seems like a trade-off that can't really be achieved. You can't really have a flight feather that's also super black that we know of. Um, in terms of temperature, what an interesting question, because as you know, black absorbs light, right? So you worry if you're ultra black that you might be heating up. You probably know this if you've ever worn a black shirt on a hot summer day and then regretted it, right? There's serious downsides to be clad in black. <laughs> what we think we see in these birds, and there's a couple of research labs that have studied super black and butterflies that found a similar thing, is it seems like they are actually emitting light at higher wavelengths. So rather than trapping energy and heating up, they seem to kind of be black body radiators that are absorbing visible wavelengths of light, but re-emitting it um, at higher infrared wavelengths. So this needs to be studied more. We're not exactly sure what's going on here, but that's a, a really astute question. That's really cool that these feathers may have evolved to absorb all the light of the visible wavelengths. So the wavelengths that we can see and therefore making them black but at the same time, reflecting infrared wavelengths, which are mainly responsible for heating up animals and therefore keeping the bird cooler. That's really cool. And thinking about multifunctionality, it's also been proposed that some super black materials and, and other animals function as, as hydrophobic surfaces, repelling water. And I think the idea here is that these microscale or nanoscale structures give less surface area for the water droplets to adhere to. So is that the same for super black feathers? Are they more hydrophobic than normal bird feathers? Oh, that's a great question. I should run over and try dropping a bead of water on one of the feathers because I've never studied that. I don't know what it, would, what it would be like. But you're absolutely right. A lot of times super black has a water repellent function or can have an antibacterial function. In a strange, strange coincidence, my undergraduate mentor, Leo Buss, the guy who taught me how to use museum collections. He was growing colonial hydra in a uh, Petri dish. And he discovered that he could buy, you know, manufactured super black as a way of stopping the hydra from growing in particular regions. So what a weird collision of worlds, right? When I was studying this in birds, he said, hey, come on over to the lab. Let me show you. Super black is also useful in this completely different area. But I think, you know, it's so tempting to try to find sort of an adaptive explanation, like it's related to heat or it's related to water repellency or something. And all of those might well be true, but I think the more compelling explanation to me is that 
it serves a function in sexual display. So, you know, why would these birds that are under such intense sexual selection to be brightly colored? And we know that female birds prefer bright colors from experiments, choice experiments. Why be black if you know that birds like bright color? And the reason we propose is that it's an optical illusion that makes the nearby colors look impossibly bright as if they're glowing. So it's definitely possible that they're serving multiple functions, but that's, I think, the most likely explanation. Yeah, that does certainly seem to be the most important function in, in Birds of Paradise, where the visual effect of these iridescent patches being surrounded by super black plumage is so stunning. It just looks like this bright iridescent green or or blue patch just floating in nothingness. It's It's quite remarkable. But what about other birds? Are there other birds with super black plumage? And have they also evolved super black plumage next to brilliantly colored patches in particular? I love this question, Clara, because like one way you can better understand a trait is look for whether it has evolved convergently in many different taxa, many different species. And that tells you some clues as to what it's for. Um, so yeah, this, this super black evolved in about 15 different bird families. Although every once in a while, Rick and I send each other an email, like, looks like another one. He can attach a picture of a, some strange bird that looks very, very black in a photo. But in at least 15 families, it evolved separately. And in every case, it evolved right next to or surrounding a very saturated color patch, often blue, sometimes red, yellow, or green, um, suggesting that it's got some purpose, at least in birds, related to sexual display. So it sounds like super black plumage has evolved quite frequently in birds, which is really fascinating. Let's broaden our view a little and think about super black materials in other animal groups, including insects and fish. Are these structures similar to what we see in birds or are they really diverse? Oh, super diverse um, in general. The big difference is between stuff in water and on land. That's because structural colors take advantage of the fact that air is very different than biological materials in terms of density and in terms of how quickly light can move through it. So you can achieve super black on land with surface structures. Conversely, water is much more similar to biological tissues. So in order to be super black, the fish evolved under their skin, dense arrays of melanosomes. These are little ellipsoids that contain melanin pigments and they're packaged and shaped in just the right way to be as dark as possible. So you've got all these different things. And, and even on land, bird feathers are a lot different than butterfly wings, which have kind of a honeycomb pattern to achieve super black. So wide, diverse range of the sort of different technologies, different natural technologies to achieve the same physical outcome. Right. And talking about these structures as nature's technologies in a way, what can we learn from nature in terms of developing new materials? I think we can learn a lot from nature. You can think of life on Earth as a 3.5 billion year long experiment. 3.5 billion years of product testing and development. Natural selection is unforgiving. So many creatures on Earth have evolved highly efficient adaptations. And like I said, evolution is stingy. So usually creatures don't use more material than they need to get the maximal effect. So this, I think, can give us some ideas for shortcuts. Say, for example, we want to design a more efficient solar panel. If you build a solar panel, you don't really want light to be reflecting off of the surface because that's you're losing potential energy. So one thing we can do is look at 
super black animals and say, how are they stopping light from reflecting right at the surface? What did they evolve to reduce that loss of light? And the spiders I studied, um, these are called peacock spiders. They're really beautiful, definitely worth a Google if you haven't seen them. Jurgen Otto has some great videos of peacock spiders in the wild. These tiny peacock spiders evolved an array of regularly spaced bumps called micro lenses that are highly efficient at preventing reflection at the surface. So my friend, Nikolai Mansberg, actually fabricated some potential coatings to solar panels of the same size and shape as these peacock spider bodies. And early results suggest that they can go a long way towards making solar panels more efficient. So needless to say, that kind of application is early, early stage. But there's so many examples of us learning from nature, whether it's self-cooling buildings based on termite mounds or the bullet trains in Japan that are based on a kingfisher's beak to reduce the sound and change in velocity as you go into a tunnel you know, and out of a mountain. That's big changes in pressure. So we have a lot to learn from nature. And I love that you asked that question, Clara, because I think, I think that's a hugely untapped resource for making more efficient design, which, I mean, I, I might argue that climate change and sustainable design is one of the biggest challenges we face as a world. So um, nature is one great source of inspiration. Absolutely. We need all the help we can get. And I think we've learned from listening to you, Cody, that if you want to find really exciting and innovative solutions to complex problems, you should head over to your nearest museum collection and perhaps have a really close look at the bird feathers. So with these great lessons learned, I'd like to thank you so much, Cody, for joining us on Specimen Stories today. Thank you, Clara. This was great fun. I really appreciate you inviting me. And I, yeah, I can't wait to hear from all the other different collections departments you're going to speak with. So thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Specimen Stories. If you're curious about Cody's research or want to see some images of Birds of Paradise with super black feathers, head on to the show website at claranorden.com slash specimen stories. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Clarnodian, and the music was downloaded from purpleplanet.com and pixabay.com. If you like the show or have any thoughts or comments you'd like to share with me, let me know at specimenstoriespodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>